Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Zarrell. With me, as always, is professional film critic, Sean Patrick. Visit us at IHateCritics.net, Everyone'sACriticPodcast.com. The site is in desperate need of an upgrade. Uh, I haven't done that yet, because last time I did that, I lost a million episodes. <laughs> so <clears throat> I'm trying to find a way to archive them. Uh, so it's not really working mobily, from what I understand. Uh, and every now and then, it may or may not go down. Uh, but I'll, I'm working on it. Just know that. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Critics Pod is the handle. Uh, like and subscribe at all those locations and interact. Uh, Jeff is interacting with us right now <laughs> on Facebook. More on that later. Yes. <clears throat> uh, uh, we did uh, have some uh, Facebook comments this week that uh, I would like to mention, if that's all right. Please do. Uh, because uh, Josh, our very own Josh, uh, shared with us his top five movies of the year. Really? Yes. And I thought, uh, well, I can't, my, my phone's not going to connect. But uh, yeah, Josh mentioned his top five movies of the year, of course, to go with our episode last week of uh, our best movies of the year. Was it a comment on the? Yeah. Yeah, right, commented on the it. episode. I'll find it while we, you talk out loud. But uh, yeah, I, I thought it, I thought Josh had a good list. Obviously, it indicated that he still hasn't seen Midsummer because it's not on his list. <laughs> I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing yeah. on that. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm glad I'm glad to have Josh there and making. And obviously, if if you if you're a fan of Josh, if you're a Josh Stan, uh, he's uh, on our new Patreon only episode, uh, which is uh, our best of the decade. How'd that go, by the way? Uh, it went good. I mean, we don't have many Patreon supporters, so. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> still looking for Josh's comment. Was it here. in the? Was maybe it was on the? Uh, uh, I thought it was on there. Uh, maybe it's in the group. Ah, uh, it's probably in the group. Uh, Josh. That's where I should do most of the stuff in the group, anyway. You know, I mean, the best, the best <laughs> of the decade. It'll be coming out to everybody soon. Uh, we just want to give the Patreon supporters something first, but I don't think our Patreon supporters, a lot of them even know how to listen to podcasts on Patreon. So. <laughs> All right, here we go with Josh. Wow. <laughs> Didn't see enough for number five. Dolomite is my name. Uh, we might talk about it briefly later on in the episode since we're, we're very short on movies. I love this movie, uh, but I've seen so many that it didn't make my top 10. But when I listened to, like, I listened to Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier do their podcast of the best of the year, and they had Dolomite on their top three. Huh. Uh, they were debating who would win the Oscar between Eddie Murphy, Adam Sandler, Adam Driver, and Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, so there's that. <laughs> uh, the Beach Bum, he is at number three. In the movie, I enjoyed quite a bit. Josh loved it as much. Sean was a little. Uh, I, don't care I think for it was it. overkill for him. <laughs> <clears throat> And I, I, to me, it's the top thirty movie. Uh, Us number two. Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier talk about this one as well. They were also talking about how Lupita Nyong'o needs to win the Oscar, and then Scott Mosier did the voice almost perfectly. And then they're like, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> Maybe it's a lot easier than we thought. <laughs> but they are kidding, obviously. Us is fantastic, and then obviously number one, The Joker. Yeah, uh, he, he adores that movie. He talks about it even on the best of the decade list. He talked about it. Yeah, and I mean, it's a good movie. People piss me off, though, and A24 just continues to just ruin everybody else's movies. <laughs> Pretty much. 
<laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, be sure to join our Facebook group, though, and interact there as well. And when the best of the decade comes out, feel free to add your comments yeah, in there as I'd well. Yeah, love to have your lists. Because that one's very subjective. <laughs> <laughs> Too many movies to choose from. So true. Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all your podcatchers. Subscribe there. Right and view the show there as well. Uh, Jason Mollett was telling me about there's another podcast out there called Everyone's a Critic, but it's not a movie podcast at all. And they're getting they're way ahead on the search than you are. I'm like, well, one, our websites are out of date. Two, I, I don't care because they're not a movie review podcast. <laughs> uh, but we could use that, use them to people could accidentally find ours. <laughs> we are popping up in the movie review search pretty regularly, which That's is good. nice. Uh, but any. Any interaction there really helps us with the algorithm, so please mm-hmm. subscribe there. And then Patreon, IHateCritics.net slash Patreon, the best way to help support the podcast. Uh, we're going the opposite direction with Patreon supporters instead of the <laughs> right direction. Uh, but So if you want to help support the podcast, that is the best way. And we'll just jump into our show, and we'll start with uh, I commissioned three designs from Uncle, or Cousin Jeff, thinking throughout the course of the year he'd get them done and right out of the gate two of them were done almost overnight and he's in the middle of the third one if not finished with it uh that's what we're messaging about right now those will be available on our podcast merch tab on i hate critics.net very very soon but i'm very impressed with them uh, i'm assuming you are too i mean i i'm, I'm i've been a, been a fan of jeff lassiter for years so yeah i mean i I've already bought stuff off of his Tee Public page. I mean, I'm drinking coffee out of one of them right now. My son's got a shirt. I got other. I, I don't know. His art's fantastic, and I'm really excited to add these three pieces to our collection and, uh, you know, give you guys the option to buy something better than what I've done thus far. <laughs> uh, so be on the lookout for that. It should be very, very soon. Uh, what next? Trailers. Quiet Place 2. Yeah, Quiet Place 2. Um, I don't know. I, I wasn't uh, completely blown away. Uh, I The time shift kind of threw me, because it starts off as kind of a prequel, and then it jumps to being a sequel. So that was a little bit weird. I didn't quite follow what that was about. Um, and now it's kind of going into this whole direction about uh, about people are the real monsters kind of a thing, and I'm like, it, that's I feel like I've been there, done that before. Yeah, I feel the same. After I mean, I like the movie. Man is the real monster. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the ter- premise of Bird Box too? Like, come on. Well, yeah, I mean, it was kind of the anti- the opposite of uh, opposite's not even the right word. Hearing and seeing, but. Uh, the first one was good. It was scary, but then there was just a bunch of like little things. questions you yeah. start asking about it. They got kind of annoying. And kind <laughs> like, of, the 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 episode title you chose was fantastic, like uh, qu- uh, "Silent Sex." Because Josh was, we were maybe all three of us did. I remember. I feel like Josh brought it up, but we all kind of were wondering it ourselves. Like how the, how are you having sex that quietly? Right. I mean. The bed would move. It's got to be some sort of noise that the humans make. Uh, I mean, it's Emily Blunt, for God's sake. But uh, I, it, 
there's just too many more questions and answers. So to me, it was just decent. That's yeah. kind of the best I can call it. So I'm not, I don't need this movie, but it was a massive success. And I'm, I guess I'm curious to see how they sequelize it. Is it a prequel or a sequel? I mean, it's a, it's a sequel. I mean, but there's a prequel element to it. So they introduce how the um, monsters came. got there, I guess, or when they got there for some reason. Which makes no sense, because really, I don't know how you're going to survive that. <laughs> yeah. Because really, you made a noise, you were dead within half a second. And that's a, that's one of the things that I've been complaining about a lot lately, is uh, odd stacking. I hate when movies stack the odds so much against survival that it becomes like you just can't buy into the premise anymore. And I bought into how they got out of it in the movie, The yeah. Quiet Place. But now, now you're going to run a sequel. You're going to go a little bit of a prequel in there. So now you got to do that perfect. You just, I don't know. You, your odds are really, it's going to be really hard to match the original movie or even more. So mm-hmm. whatever. I'm up for the effort, I suppose. Uh, let's move on to our new movies this week. Or we'll start with the new movie and then mess around on Netflix. <laughs> The Grudge. Go ahead. I've read your review already. Uh, the Grudge is uh, a movie from uh, director Nicholas Paskey, who wrote and directed uh, this, of course, based on the familiar IP of the uh, Zhuan The Grudge, the uh, Japanese original from 2004, and the Americanized remake in 06, the sequels in 07 and 09. Uh, yeah, standard stuff. Um, the, I don't understand how The Grudge works. But we'll get to that. Uh, we start with a, uh, a flashback to a woman in Japan. She gets a, the grudge attaches itself to her there somehow. She brings it home to her home in, I believe it's Pennsylvania. Uh, then she ends up, something happens with the grudge at her house. Uh, the grudge then affects the uh, a bunch of different people who enter this particular house. And uh, Andrea Riesbaro is the, I guess, the overall star here as direct as Detective Muldoon. She arrives in town to be a detective, and right off the bat, they establish her character in the worst possible way with just this really clunky expository dialogue where she's talking to her young son. Uh, there, she's establishing that the that the father is gone or dead or something. But uh, she she's talking about her son having nightmares, and she says, "Don't worry, I'm a cop." I'm like just visual storytelling alone could have done this. Just have a little, have a little, you know, have her uh, badge on her belt, a badge and a gun on a belt, you know, just show that and visual storytelling instead of her just clunkily announcing to somebody who already knows she's a police officer, that she's a police officer. You know what I mean? Like her son knows what she does for a living. You know, you could use, just use a visual, just use a visual here and, and just do some actual direction as opposed to this. Uh, But that's, that's the first of many, um, you know, complaints about this movie that because it's just entirely artless it's an artless film um and in my review i was comparing it to to like a like a horror snapchat account like if you had it if you had a snapchat account was that was just about you jumping out of hallway jumping out of dark rooms going boo that's the grudge do they have the uh, sound in this one like yeah they did? Oh, yeah god Lame. I hated the grudge that came out in the 90s. Was it early 2000s, late 90s, whatever Mid-2000, it was? Mid-2000s, yeah. The, Mid-2000s, that late? Wow. Yeah, it was 2006 was the remake. Jesus Christ. 2004 was the Japanese original. I didn't even really like the Japanese original that much, if I'm being honest. Mm. I'll, I mean, I'll take Ringu and the Ring over this. I mean, it's the Ring's fault that these movies exist. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, at least the Ring's a unique idea that 
quickly got overused. <laughs> but the grudge I just never got. At least the ring had a premise that could travel. I don't understand how the grudge works. It doesn't make any sense. How does the So here's the the grudge, right? It it attaches itself to this woman in Japan by grabbing her leg. It like a hand reaches out of a trash bag and grabs her leg and she takes the grudge home with her. And we get this text on screen because the movie is again entirely artless in how it delivers its premise so it tells you that when somebody dies in a horrific fashion something is a, a power is created and it doesn't even say that it's called the grudge but obviously the title pops up after that and says the grudge so i guess that's what the this being is this entity that is created when someone dies horrifically so this woman takes the grudge back home with her she ends up murdering her daughter and her husband uh, horrifically and taking her own life. And the house essentially then is cursed by the grudge. But then <laughs> the grudge attaches itself to a detective played by William Sadler, and he becomes crazy, but he doesn't take it home with him. It stays at the house. But then John Cho is the real estate agent, and he shows up at the house, uh, I guess, somewhere be- before their Somewhere in between the murders, I guess, because you don't see the horrific things that obviously happened during the murder. So, or did the grudge clean up? I don't know. I don't know if the grudge being cleans up the building so you don't, cleans up the house. Anyway, John Cho gets the grudge attached to him. I'm going to spoil everything, folks, to just get, just get ready. Because I got I to gotta do it to explain why this is so stupid. So if you don't want to hear the, the grudge spoilers for some reason, if you're dying to see this fucking movie. All the listeners are like me. A grudge movie came out this week? <laughs> like, honest to God, I thought 1917 came out this week. So I was like, going as, like oh, anyway, spoil away. Uh, so John Cho is the real estate agent. He's married to Betty Gilpin. And the grudge attaches itself to him and then goes home with him. He takes the grudge home with him and horrific things happen at his house. So is that house grudged now as well it doesn't there's no there's no establishment of that it doesn't establish no consistency that. either there's zero consistency did he pull it out of the other house or did they just move on from the house you don't know i the the burn that house down at the end but the grudge lives on because it attaches itself to andrea reesborough and she takes it home and so she's got the grudge at her house now for grudge too. <laughs> oh, there will be a sequel. Yes, just made this, money because that's what this movie does. It that's ends so with a, it has to end with a sequel tease, and and that's another insulting, artless aspect of this is that if you're a, a better director, a better filmmaker, people who actually care about making this movie wouldn't make it so insulting because we are we're smart enough as audience members, even if you're young and too young to remember the original Grudge from '06. If you're somebody that young, you're still well trained enough in going to the movies to know they're going to make another one. Of these so give me an ending that justifies what you know, give us an ending that acknowledges the fact that we're smart enough to know that your movie is ending with a sequel tease instead of just delivering the sequel tease completely artlessly without you know pretend pretending as if this is a surprise to us <coughs> that's the part that bogs me is that they're pretending that we're supposed to be surprised by this we're not surprised we know we know the grudge is an ending. We know that you made this movie for $10 million, and it made $11 million this weekend. We know you're doing another one. We know this is about a familiar IP as opposed to being an actual movie. So don't insult us by pretending that we're supposed to be shocked by this ending. Her son is uh, going to school, so she's trying to get him up and out of his room to go to school, and she goes in, and she's talking to him, and she leans down, and she's giving him a, giving him a hug, and in the background you see her 
actual son go, bye, mom. And she's holding the grudge. <laughs> and then she screams. And who knows what happens to her from there. My main problem with the original was you saw the monster way too much. Mm-hmm. Like, we, at least with the ring, they hit it enough that <clears throat> it was kind of scary when it came on screen. Uh, unless you've been watching movies for a million years and you see everything. <laughs> uh, you know, someone who doesn't go to the theater often, it was scary. <clears throat> the grudge wasn't because it was just nonstop on the screen. And is it kind of like that in this one? It's it's less prominent. Uh, they they switch it up a little bit. So the grudge becomes a, a little white girl as opposed to a Japanese girl. But the Japanese girl is still there for some reason. So I, I guess this is a sequel. I don't know if this is a sequel, a reboot, a reimagining. I don't know. Because, again, it's just that level of artless and just here to capitalize on familiar IP. Really, this is just a a vaguely familiar IP that people are aware of, and that's why this movie exists. And that's just – it's all just shitty. It's just all so shitty and and so corporate and just so slapped together. Uh, Boo. You know, just somebody jumping up and go, boo. Like a like – it is just – it really is just a series of scenes that are like a series of, of Snapchats. I really don't care. I mean, I got A24, so I'm happy. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to take a familiar IP and make a movie out of it, you know, I'll take what the Avengers did. You know, I got sick of it and bored, but at least they had one guy at the top and they let other artists come in and play. And he let them play, uh, like real artists. You know, Star Wars. Kind of did, and then the fans did a little backlash, and then they're like, nope, we're going back to the boardroom. <laughs> and I imagine, I, I can't imagine that Nicholas Pesky, the director, writer-director here, is this bad. No. I, I, I imagine that he got compromised throughout this thing by, the, by, by Bloomhouse, the company that's, that put this together. I, I really do, because I, I think I read, I read about his other movies. I've not seen his uh, two other uh, directorial films, but they, they both have unique premises, and uh, one of them's got some pretty good reviews. Uh, one of them's got Mia Wasikowska. You know? And <laughs> that's another aspect of this is the casting. The casting of this movie. I mean, it's so annoying. It's it's basically love boat casting. <laughs> they've, they've got all these familiar faces. You got John Cho. You got Betty Gilpin from Glow. You've got Lynn Shay, who they bar- who they use just they barely use at all. Uh, they make her a, a they make her somebody who's a, who's suffering from dementia. So you can't even use her. She's not even you know be able able to be fully present. And she's the best thing in 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 any horror movie you could have. She's one of the you know she's a horror icon from the Insidious movies. And you just don't even use her properly. Why even cast her in this role? Then you got uh, Jackie Weaver. You've got Damian Bashir, uh, William Sadler. So you've got this Love Boat-style cast that is basically just being subjected to this terrible uh, execution of this premise. That's just this boo premise. And I don't know. You talk about the cast, and there's people I like, and it... It's frustrating. Like someone like Betty Gilpin, who's kind of the girl that, oh, do I know her from something? Nurse Jackie, maybe, or Glow, or Masters. And then she's got this movie, The Hunt, that was supposed to come out last year that they just flat out buried because of some stupid reason that people might be offended by it. <laughs> More of a passion project for her that she was, I mean, finally yeah. a chance to really show off, and now she's got the grudge instead. John Cho, I mean, all of them. I like all of them. Yeah. It just sucks they're in this movie. It sucks this movie exists. But there is that, you know, you sit there and say, we're not, the audience isn't dumb enough. 
bullshit. <laughs> That's why it made eleven million dollars. They know but, exactly what they're but doing. But it got an F cinema score. But they keep going back. That's true. The I, horror movie audience will always be uh, the, the, as as horror as you know horror is horror, but people are optimistic about horror movies. It's weird too. All the, the horror movie audience is very is kind of like the metal audience, probably the wrestling audience too. They're just everybody likes a different part of it. And like uh, cousin Jeff's a, of all the people I know and you know probably he's the most into it. Uh, <clears throat> he and I overlap more than probably you and I or he and you. But we also go and you know he likes different things than I do. It's just kind of I don't know. It's different. You just, it's that mainstream horror audience, mainstream action audience. I mean, the people that go to see this, the people that go and see those uh, falling movies or whatever from Jared Butler, fallen movies right. or whatever, <laughs> and they like them and they keep coming back. And again, nothing wrong with that, but it's not for me and. I, I see. I I, I, dis, I dispute the idea that they actually even like these movies. I think I think it's I think it's optimism that maybe this time they won't fuck it up. Maybe this time they'll get it right. Maybe this time it'll be good. I don't think they necessarily like them, I but I don't think they're that that smart either. I think it's somewhere <laughs> in between. I mean, I just I know some of these people that go to these type of movies, yeah. and they're more of a. They just kind of go completely open-minded and either love it or you're like, oh, it was kind of dumb. But they're also the type of people that say Midsummer sucks or, you know, I don't know. That, but that, that just proves to me that Midsummer is amazing. Right. <laughs> the fact that there are people who don't like it is the proof of concept that it's brilliant. Right. It's the I'm better than you kind of <laughs> feeling as a viewer, which I hate having except for in that scenario. Uh. Anything else on corporate America or uh, <laughs> the grudge? Oh, man. I'm just. Just stop making these. I wish you, they're not going to stop making these. They're never going to stop making these. And I. Well, I mean, and we got a few weeks of there. We're going to get a little Oscar carryover, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, with Just Mercy in 1917 next week. And then. But you're going to have some more, some IPs in the Bad Boys 3, and then, you do know, little. do little, which hopefully they have, you know, allowed the artists to have fun with these movies and not handcuff them. And then even that uh, Salma Hayek, Tiffany Haddish movie, Like a Boss. That looks That brutal. looks like a boardroom movie. It looks uh, brutal from the trailers. It looks just so bad. God, part of me just hopes it. Kind of Kevin Hart's it and yeah. makes a decent watchable movie, but the trailers are not good. No, they're they're really terrible. Uh, but let's move on to Netflix and streaming movies. Uh, we'll start with the two popes and just kind of talk about what else we've been watching because we've got plenty of time. <laughs> uh, the two popes stars uh, Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins as the uh, most recent. Uh, Two Popes. Uh, this is based off of a, a play by uh, Andrew McCartan, who uh, kind of stumbled across the uh, the story. He didn't realize just how rare it was that there were at a time at one time there were two popes, which is a pretty rare thing. It hadn't happened in about seven hundred years that uh, two men were essentially pope at the same pope. Two popes were still, still alive. alive. Yeah, uh, you had uh, Ratzinger, uh, who was Pope Benedict, and uh, you have uh, the new pope, Pope Francis. Uh, and they're two very conflicting ideologies. Uh, they see one's more uh, liberal and forward-thinking, and one is very much in the past. And 
Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and those two, the way they clash, and the and the kind of uh, the interesting conversations that erupt from that. He, obviously, this is based entirely on his own invention, uh, right. Andrew McCartan, he, and. Uh, but it's a, it's a pretty great invention. You can imagine these two characters having these types of very intellectual, combative conversations about faith and about approaches to faith and about approaches to Catholicism and approaches to how they see uh, the world evolving. And I, I really enjoyed that. I really loved the way these two characters spoke to each other and uh, the respect that, uh, you know, that Pope Francis carries for, for Pope Benedict, even as he finds... Uh, some of what he says to be uh, entirely objectionable, and how how rude Benedict could be to him, uh, but he would take it and and just try to push through, and and it just shows how it just demonstrates the, you know, his level of compassion uh, as a person, as a character, and it kind of makes you hope he kind of really like this. <laughs> I really. Yeah. I really like the dynamic between the two of them. Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins really work extraordinarily well together. And uh, and, Mara- and F- Fernando Mireles gives this uh, a visual luster. He really bring- he makes this movie look beautiful. Obviously, he's got a lot of help from this, you know, the settings of Vatican City, uh, whatever, however they did that, which is pretty incredible. Right. Uh, the settings are, are spectacular and opulent and uh, extraordinary you feel like you're in the vatican at one point which is pretty amazing and uh even i'm not religious i can still be impressed by the architecture oh yeah is this movie gotten any backlash or people liking it across the board for the most part people seem to be liking it like my dad loves this movie uh and he's a catholic uh he likes to say christian first but i mean he still goes to catholic church uh i I I found it fascinating. I mean, knowing that it's his own invention, it it automatically gets you out of that lane of well, this didn't happen this way. And so, <clears throat> when you're out of that lane, this movie is just fantastic. <clears throat> and God, we both have <laughs> throat problems today. <laughs> <clears> throat> uh, the it's just fun to watch the the dynamic between the two, like you said. Uh, mixed with that scenery, it just makes it a really fascinating movie. The idea, uh, I mean, we all know that the Catholic Church has gotten a little more liberal over the since uh, Pope Francis took office. <laughs> <laughs> but and uh, there's part of me that's always kind of annoyed by that. It's like, well, do you be- you believe what you believe? You can't change the rules, but whatever. I mean, I know it's. <laughs> I thought they established that pretty well, though, that it's not necessarily a change in the rules, know, per se. Because that has changed. Over, that They did a good job of explaining that it's changed over the course of the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and it's also about the, how you approach the material of the Bible, too, which there are many different ways to approach it. If you're approaching it from the perspective right. that that uh, Francis approaches it from, it's different from the you know, more old-school interpretation of Benedict. And I love the, the way that they clash over how they interpret the text. And they definitely established that in the movie. This is something I've always brought to it, you know, in real-life conversations. And I've stolen it from other—I don't even know who—maybe it was like Penn Teller or Penn Gillette. I think he was the one saying, "No, you're Catholic. This is what you believe. You can't say you." <laughs> <laughs> but no, they in the movie uh, they do definitely establish it, I and mean, I think it's just fantastic. Uh, mostly foreign, I guess it goes back and forth between foreign and English, but it easy to watch. 
fascinating. Uh, I highly recommend it if you hadn't seen it. It's definitely worth the watch. Honestly, of the like, I know there's a lot of uh, Netflix movies out there that people uh, like and are pushing out there. And Marriage Story is obviously, I think, probably my favorite, obviously. But I think The Two Popes, for me, is at least right there next to Marriage Story is my two favorite of Netflix this year. And I know that's controversial for some people with the Irishman. I'm not, I'm, I just disagree. I'm not offended by it. They're all good movies, so... I would put the the I don't know I'd put the Irishman up probably number one but Mary I don't know it's just hard to it's all subjective it doesn't mm-hmm. matter they're all good movies. Uh, what else have you been watching online? Anything special? Did you watch the Don't Fuck with Cats thing? No, I've heard people talk about it. Pisses me off. Why? It's fascinating for like it's a three three one hour documentary episodes. It just it's. It's fascinating for like two of the movies, two and a half of the movies. Uh, and then you get to the third one, and <clears throat> when you see what's happening, you're kind of like, that's d- kind of dumb. <laughs> what's the premise? Basically, these, you know, those f- videos on YouTube and Facebook of like cute things cats and this and that, cute things cats do, and cute things dogs do, and people falling and stuff that you laugh at. Yeah. <clears throat> well,. All of a sudden, this video of cats being tortured was starting to... They're, like, putting it in a vacuum-sealed bag, and they're showing most of this video, and what they're not showing, you're hearing. So it's effective. Don't get me wrong. Wow. Well, these people on Facebook decide to they start this group and try to find out who the killer, who the person is, so they can stop them and get them arrested. Well, it's the internet, so where could they be? Well, they're really... Like, they're analyzing this video frame by frame. They... Narrow them down to like Toronto or Montreal. They call the cops, and the cops are like, "What?" And we kind of <laughs> hang up on them. Over the course, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to spoil it, but eventually, he starts killing people. Oh wow! And <clears throat> they've known who this person is from the get-go. They found him as a cat torturer, and so now the cops are after him for real. And he, they're jumping from Russia to France to Canada to the U.S. Uh, this is a documentary. Yeah. Wow. It's a true story. And then they capture him, and, you know, he starts claiming he was forced to do it by this other person named Manny. (laughs) I'm just, at this point, I spoiled everything. (laughs) Basically, he was such a fan of Basic Instinct, he starts creating... Uh, the way he kills the person is the same way Catherine Trammell, like he's straddling the person and he's yeah. stabbing him with a, what looks like an ice pick. It's not. Uh, when he gets arrested, he asks for a cigarette. He's crossing his legs and uncrossing it. And I don't remember this, but apparently Catherine Trammell keeps referencing this guy named Manny. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, they're like, well, he just wanted us to watch him. Maybe we're the problem. And then they look at the screen and goes, and so are you? I'm like, no, fuck you. You made this movie. <laughs> You're the problem. Yeah, you're right. You were watching him, and they're making it all about these people could have caught him if the people taking him more serious early on. And they turned it into this whole thing about it's your fault for watching it. And watching it, one, you weren't presenting it as something like that. Right. But watching it was how you caught him, so isn't that a good thing? <laughs> but they, well, not really, because they caught. That's not how they caught him. Okay. Uh, they well, caught him because he killed somebody. People. They caught him. Be, well, the internet people, but no one... Can't, nothing came of it yeah because they're just all fat slobs in their house i mean they literally are and they never leave so they just sit there and they're they're doing their best and whatever but oh, the somebody, guy just wants attention and oh, somebody's gonna turn this into a terrible thriller 
Yeah, I, I was really. <laughs> this, gonna, this sounds like the watcher or the bone collector in the, of the oh, future. Jesus Christ. I'll be, I'll be honest. For the first episode, I was like, well, that's interesting. And it, you keep building in. And then as soon as they introduce Basic Instinct, you start to just roll your eyes a little bit. And then when they try to make this big statement, we need to stop watching the news in this kind of, Well, no, they need to really work on the way they report the stuff because that's really what the issue is. And I don't know. Just very, very disappointed Yeah. to watch the Kevin Hart thing. He's got a little documentary out about the last year of his life. Or maybe it was a little longer than that where he cheats on his wife. Or he, the whole gate. That was big news. Maybe it was over a year ago. Huh. Uh, the whole, you know, that the Oscar stuff all pops back up. Uh, it was pretty fascinating. Huh. Uh, it, it digs into that argument of, you know, something he said. Something he said ten years ago. He's a different person now. He, everybody wants him to keep apologizing for it, and he he wants to just move on. And they they really dig into the argument of why he should and why he shouldn't. And it's it's just fascinating, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. And then Dolomite, we've never really talked about it on the podcast. Did you like Dolomite or not really? I I'm I'm kind of a I'm I'm okay with it. It's good, and uh, Eddie Murphy's really good. I th- I found it really broad. I thought the movie was very broad, and uh, in you know that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the I just it doesn't connect with me as any kind of really like great movie. It just it's a really it's a fun kind of entertaining movie. To me, it was like the Disaster Artist Light. Yeah, kind of. But good. <coughs> Solid movie, and Eddie Murphy is really great. He's very entertaining. I, I don't quite connect with what people are finding uh, in in terms of depth with this movie, because I don't really find much depth in, in Rudy Ray Moore. I, I I guess I connect with that part of it. I It's, I don't know, just the passion of wanting to create something to be artistic. I I, I think they ca- captured that in the movie. Uh, it's... I don't know. It wasn't so much they wanted to be famous. He just wanted his stuff heard and and no, without I don't without any cost. Without, I mean, he just never gave up. He was into his fifties, and I don't know. There was just it kind of reminds me of the room in a way where there's there is something genuine about it, which makes it why those movies kind of I don't want to say hold up, but people still talk about them and yeah, why those movies got made. weirdly sincere, right? And that's, I think, what makes these movies different from something like The Grudge, which we'll forget about by next <laughs> right. week. Anything else you want to talk about before we move on? Uh, you know, not really. I mean, uh, there's a, uh, I guess there's a YouTube uh, person that I that I follow a lot uh, who is really very interesting, and she's uh, she her channel is called ContraPoints. Her name is Natalie. Uh, she is a, a, a trans woman. And she's uh, she's facing the situation where she's been repeatedly canceled by culture over and over again, and uh, mostly from people on the left, where she's really a very left wing artist herself. And she's trying to find a balance in between where she wants these people to understand that she's understands that their concern their concerns about her, but at the same time, many of their concerns about her are very. Um, What's the word I want to use here? Very, I want to be fair because she was very fair. Uh, they're overblown. She worked with somebody who may have some beliefs that are questionable to trans people. 
And suddenly that led to a lot of people uh, in her community canceling her. Like, we're done with you. We're not going to talk to you. And it's literally this guy did a 10-second voiceover for one of her other videos. And it caused this furor that had her basically canceled to the point where she was, like, losing Patreon supporters over this 10-second thing of involving this guy. And it was really – it's really fascinating. She's very fair. She's very honest. She's very open. She's extraordinarily funny and creative. Uh, her entire channel is amazing for learning about uh, – she, she does a lot of things on, on fascism and anti-fascism and exploring the right and kind of refuting them. Uh, but also lots of really fascinating things about trans culture and helping people to understand trans people and pronouns and how to how to speak to them in a way that you know, demonstrates that you care. And uh, that's really changed the way I see the world a lot. And so I really appreciate her a, a great deal. And uh, just to, uh, Natalie's amazing and everybody should should be watching her videos. Uh, the channel is called ContraPoints on YouTube. It sounds very interesting. And not to get totally off track, but the whole, like, to me, the cancel culture isn't as bad as we're all blowing it out to be. Uh, you know, you look at someone like Chris Hardwick, who was canceled for like 30 seconds, and then he was back on Talking Dead, and his podcast came back, and, you know, Scott Kahn was on Mark Maron's show, and he was talking about he's always afraid, he's just worried he's going to get in trouble and get canceled, and Mark Maron's like, what do you mean? You're not going to accidentally say the N-word on the show, so you're going to be, I mean... Aside from that, there's nothing you can really say that's going to get you canceled. You'll, there might be a discussion that happens. You may lose Patreon support or something. Uh, but that discussion is really uh, where we need to get, and that's where we're at as a culture. I don't think we need to be afraid of being canceled as much as it's been blown out to. I mean, Kevin Hart is a perfect example. We were just talking about it. Yeah, he had that little shit in the social media, but his movies did great. You know, the upside didn't suffer at all. Brian Cranston dropped out of promoting and still did good. So, Louis C.K. is touring now. And there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it, this is a place for you to learn from your mistakes and have that discussion. And I, God willing, he has. <laughs> I have a friend who went to one of his shows, and that's all he talked about. It was, sounds like he has. <laughs> He's not showing his dick to people. No, he's good, not, and okay. he's not playing the victim right. either. He's not. That was kind of the main thing that. Well, because that's what happened. You know, Roseanne Barr played the victim. Yeah. Part of Hardwick's problem was he was playing the victim. Kevin Hart was, you know, and I don't know. It's just a. I don't think it's as bad as it we. No, it and and really, and for me, the, when it comes to this, the people who are are, are mostly the people who are actually dealing with something serious are people like Natalie mm -hmm. and uh, friends of hers who have been affected by this. Who, uh, where people are just going so far to to be so offended by something that is so small. I mean, she gave no thought to using this guy's voice for ten seconds in a video. It meant nothing to her to do it. She just kind of she met him. She liked him. Uh, he's a figure in the trans community that's been there for a long time uh, who, yeah, he's, he's old. So he's got some old school kind of opinions that can hurt people's feelings. He uses the wrong pronouns. He misgenders people. And that offended a good, pe good deal of people. But for people to say that she should be canceled and done and not be able to do her job and, and, and to, she's, she's been into a spiral of depression for two months because of this, all because of 10 seconds right. of audio, uh, 
it's just it's ridiculous the level of, of attack that she faces. And she is so much more vulnerable than somebody like Ricky oh, yeah. Gervais or or Kevin Hart because uh, you know, oh, she's yeah. in a situation where she's supported by Patreon and YouTube and and it could actually have an effect on her. She's she's like middle class as opposed to you know right. upper class. And it's cool that she's having the discussion and going through it and. You know, it sucks that she has to go through the depression part of it. Uh, you know, that's the worst part. And I, it sounds fascinating, really. It really is. It, it truly is. And she and she's just incredibly intelligent. So go check that out. Contrapoints on YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event for the linear, legitimate, and universally recognized. Undisputed classic. Hang on. Uh, I For mentioning ContraPoints, we've been canceled. I'm sorry. <laughs> no such thing as canceled. <laughs> you can't cancel us. That's my one of my favorite comedians, uh, Jim Florentine. He's like, I don't got a show. So I don't. What are you going to cancel me from? He wrote a book called uh, Everybody's Everybody's Wrong Except You. And <laughs> In a way, that's kind of how you should look through. I mean, everybody has their own opinions on, I don't know. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, Zodiac. Zodiac. <laughs> yes. David Fincher. Uh, it's with, uh, of course, Robert Downey Jr., Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, an amazing cast, Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards. Um, Anthony Edwards, an early theme of this yeah. show this year for some reason. Uh, but uh, uh, this is the story of the Zodiac Killer and uh, who the Zodiac might be. And it takes you all the back, way back to 68 uh, when the killings first maybe kind of started or at least came to people's attention. He may have been killing before that, which is something that we'll learn along the way. But uh, the Zodiac uh, kills, a couple, kills a couple in a car and uh, begins to then taunt police by contacting them and telling them what he's doing and... Um, giving you know tips about oh well I might do this I might kill this people I might kill people this date and uh, it's uh, this it becomes this thing between uh, him putting these puzzles out that people are solving and to, becomes a, a, an obsession for several different people and Fincher is amazing at portraying obsessive personalities you know you see that in Fight Club you see it in Seven. Uh, people becoming just singularly fixed on one thing, and they're unable to let go of it. And and that type of obsession is fascinating to watch, and especially as he does it here, the way it uh, affects so many different people. Robert Graysmith, played by uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, goes on to write uh, what many people believe is the definitive book on Zodiac. Uh, he becomes obsessed with breaking his puzzles and trying to f- use that to figure out who he is. Robert Downey Jr. becomes con- obsessed with it uh, as a, from a from a perspective of, of a journalist and and it starts to consume him to the point where he almost drinks himself to death and it's so it that is such a, a wonderful little undercurrent because Downey doesn't dominate the screen as much as when he's on screen he is the focus you can't take your eyes off him because he's Downey and he's that charismatic right. he doesn't dominate the movie and his character's problems are just this undercurrent that's happening it's just like he's another zodiac victim in the background and it's that's an amazing piece of, t- of storytelling. The way he uses Downey Jr. throughout is incredible, and I loved that about this movie. And then you have Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, who are the cops who are investigating Zodiac in San Francisco. You've got uh, cops in other areas also who are kind of taking on that obsession as well, but uh, specifically these two guys are right in the middle of it and, and consumed by it. Uh, and 
that is just watching these obsessions develop and how they develop and also it's a detective story so it's got that classic who done it uh aspect to it when you know they're they're throwing out their theories of who it might be and uh throwing out evidence of why it might be this guy and that's an endlessly fascinating especially since this really did happen and uh the character that they kind of settle upon is really is or was a, a zodiac suspect right it's i read your review and it's fascinating too because it plays out like it could be in the same vein as seven but it's not it's really interesting how they how fincher i don't know just the space he lets you live in with this movie it it feels different it's a fairly long movie although by today's standards it's just another movie (laughs) uh but it's just such a I don't know. When I talk about like the Scorsese, just when you're watching a good Scorsese movie, just the way you feel watching it, which is why The Irishman, I don't care if I finish it or where I'm at. I just, I like being in that space. And this, this, it feels like that. It's, you know, Gone Girl had that. The Fincher does it almost better than anybody else. It's absorbing. Yeah. And I just, I don't need to finish the movie. I can start it wherever I want. I just, you get in there and you're consumed by the whole movie and you just, like being there and it really is i guess his third masterpiece but <laughs> he's just so damn good and you know you look at ruffalo and downey jr and uh what's his name jake Gyllenhaal. Jake they weren't the stars they are now at the time downey probably was the biggest star but he was also falling apart yeah <laughs> in front of us so it, it with the way they've all become bigger stars and they're more known it doesn't affect this movie either. You know, there's no distraction. It's not Iron Man and Hulk. Uh, you know, it really is. It's timeless, despite the fact that it's a period piece. I, I don't know. It's. I've been looking for a reason to watch this movie for, again for since I first saw it, and it is just. I love this movie. It's one of the best movies period <laughs> yeah it, it's an absolutely an, an incredible film and so watchable it's just so watchable like i i thought okay you know it's two and a half hours it's late at night i'm just gonna put it on and and i'll probably just have to catch it the, you know end it at some point and pick it up the next day no i was just in it the whole time i just it kind of became i came absorbed in it watched it all the way through and maybe watched a little bit more of it again the next day just for fun i definitely watched it multiple sittings but it's more due to my not being bored it was more due to i've my work schedule's been ridiculous so i've really had two and a half hours straight to watch <laughs> a movie. uh but ah oh, god i love it i i really think fincher's he's not the bar he's like the he's the high water mark i don't know it's just it's not he's the best and everybody's looking up at him as far i mean i don't know who's better ari aster is perfect but over this course of time, yeah, he's moving to Netflix now. Fincher is. Well, yeah. he's been. Uh, he's got that Mindhunter show, I guess. Right, but he's doing his next feature is a Netflix movie. It's going to be about the making of Citizen Kane. That sounds fantastic. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> it's called Mank, so it's about the screenwriter Joseph Mankiewicz. And I'm sure I haven't watched Mindhunter. My brother tells me it's, it's really amazing. good. Yeah, and that Fincher actually directs some of the stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Uh. I don't know. The guy just doesn't mess up. I don't watch much TV, but uh, Mindhunter, because it's Fincher, I had to take a look. <laughs> I need to. I'm, I mean, the Coen brothers, Scorsese, now F- Fincher, uh, I guess I'm okay with that. 
know, Eddie Murphy's now on Netflix too. Adam Sandler, all the greats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 1990. We're in the 90s now, 30 years ago. That Isn't that crazy? Depressing. <laughs> well, last year, but it was like. 1999 wasn't 10 years ago. It was 20 years ago. And it's like, fuck. <laughs> 1990 was 30 years ago. Yeah, that's insane. This movie, however, came out in 1985, got an X rating, and just could not hit the theaters. Uh, but critics loved it, so it finally got a quick uh, run in the beginning of 1990, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah, and this is based off of uh, a real serial killer uh, inspired by Henry Lee Lucas. But there's a lot of parallels because right. uh, uh, Henry Lee Lucas uh, claimed to have killed a lot of people. And he may have done a couple of killings, but we're not sure. Right. Which kind of adds an interesting aspect to this movie that I'll get to. But uh, he also had somebody in his life named Becky, which, make again, this is another aspect of this that's really interesting. But uh, And he also killed with someone as well. So he had somebody who killed with him. Again, lots of aspects of Henry Lee Lucas that uh, that informed Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which stars Michael Rooker as Henry, and uh, he is a, somebody who just sort of kills out of a out of a just kind of not really a compulsion, just sort of something to do. Right. Like it's just he he had a traumatic childhood uh, where terrible things, or he alleges anyway that terrible things happened to him. Uh, that could be true or not true. That plays into his whole story. Uh, what we see initially, the first thing you see is a body in a field. And then it slam cuts to this guy uh, having breakfast at a greasy spoon and flirting with his waitress and buying cigarettes. And then you follow him to his car. And it's these series of cuts, these hard cuts between him and very, like, I think in the first 30 minutes, you, or 20 minutes, you see like four, maybe five of his victims. You don't actually see him kill them, though. Right. There's no actual, like, you see the aftermath of what he did, but you don't actually see the killing. And then you'll maybe hear on the, on the, the background, in the background, you'll hear uh, what it sounded like as they were being killed, which is a very interesting perform- uh, way to do this because it puts the murder in your head. You're seeing the result of it, and then you're seeing the actual thing. You're just having to imagine it using the sound, and that is a very effective way to, to, to tell this story. Uh, then the movie changes, though, uh, once uh, they introduce a character named Becky. Uh, Becky is the sister of Otis. Otis is his room is the roommate of Henry, and eventually his murder partner. Um, and when the movie changes here, the early on I was talking about the editing, these slam cuts. There's, there's just no transition. It's just this hard cut from one place to the next. Uh, here we get immediately it starts to change with Becky because we get these soft fade in fade out edits all of a sudden. And, and the style choices I I find very interesting about this movie because by the end, we reach another point at the end where it's back to these hard cuts and you'll know why I don't want to spoil it, but uh, this movie is really good at doing these little tiny stylistic things. Like again, the, the, the playing out the violence with just the audio and, and the result on screen or there's a little character detail that I love between Becky and Otis when she's first introduced. We fade in on, on the Chicago airport. She's sitting there. Otis comes up. First thing he says to her, you look like shit. 
<laughs> like immediately Otis has introduced himself, but we're not done in that scene with, with finding out who Otis is as just a prick. Because as they're getting up to go to the car, he picks up her carry-on, her tiny little carry-on, and makes this little girl carry this giant suitcase. Because <laughs> it's just this little tiny little character detail about Otis that he's a prick. <laughs> And it's just a, there's just little touches like that throughout the movie that really uh, make this movie so uh, artful and and careful and thoughtful. And uh, the director uh, John McNaughton uh, really put a lot of work into this. Yeah, it's one of those things where money really a lack of money really helped assist the movie. You know, they didn't have the money to show the kills. Not maybe they would ha- wouldn't have anyway. But when you don't have the money to do that, you're forced to do it a different way. Texas Chainsaw Massacre are very similar in that way as well. A lot of it was off screen. It was in your head. It was in the character's eyes. Right. Uh, this is more subtle than that. Until maybe the midpoint when <clears throat> right. they do start they showing start some showing, of it. Right. Uh, but it, it just, I don't know. I like the way, just the, the indie gorilla feel this movie has. Aside from the movie itself, I mean, the movie itself is just fantastic, but that whole independent feel that this has just, I don't know, it elevates it that much more for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, t- to me, this is one of the most terrifying movies ever. That scene where they're watching back what they just did, mm-hmm. just kind of nonchalant, uh, it, it's just so real. And it's yeah. something that I can't wrap my head around or... You know, when you watch Jason or Freddy or any other serial killer, you just kind of take it for granted. You, It is what it is, and you imagine yourself in this, playing the video game. Or some, but I, you just can't put yourself in the head of these guys, yeah. and that that is just so effective. I don't know. Stylistically, returning to the style points again, and this is something that's been nagging at me until right now as I've been thinking about it. I'm... Part of what Henry Lee Lucas did after he got caught, the real killer, was that he kept confessing to various different murders that he likely didn't commit. He was just repeatedly, he loved confessing to murders. He liked the attention. There's a style choice in here that kind of alludes to that in a way, in that the the deaths that we see, or the, the, the stuff that we see that is just Henry may not have actually happened. And that comes from the soft focus and the floating camera that are looking at these victims uh, from a sort of a God's eye perspective, floating around them to reveal them as if they were a dream or something, an imagination. It's, It's not until he and Otis kill together that we actually see a murder. And that is kind of part of the Henry Lee Lucas story as well, is that he's confessed to all these various different killings, but the ones they can actually prove are maybe the ones he did with somebody else, where we have some information to demonstrate that, yes, he actually did this. Yeah, it's that. I'd imagine that was intentional, but even if it wasn't, <laughs> it, I mean, right off the bat, they established that he's not a reliable <laughs> narrator <laughs> and he's not really a narrator, but there's, you know, he, he did go to jail for killing his mother. The character in the movie did. And I don't remember why Otis said he, how Otis said he killed him, but Otis was, said that he beat her with a baseball bat, but then he said he that he stabbed sh- her, stabbed her, but then he said he shot her in the same story. <laughs> in the same story. So yeah, there's, <laughs> <laughs> which again is another uh, one of those allusions to the Henry Lee Lucas uh, story. Yeah. And it's, 
too weird because like oh, what's his name uh michael what's his oh my god michael rooker michael rooker was nobody when this movie came out by the time it got released in 1990 it started to have a little bit of a success and now he's you know he's cleaning it up at the horror cons from the walking dead and guardians of the galaxy uh not to mention cliffhanger can't forget cliffhanger <laughs> did you recognize otis Yes. <laughs> House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects, <laughs> and other things he's done as well. Uh, and Becky looked like she was on Roseanne. She wasn't, but she kind of looked, <laughs> she looked like, was it the character Becky on Roseanne, the older one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it looked just like her. Kind of. Uh, yeah, a little, uh, but I don't know. It, it's, it is, it's not an entertaining movie, but it's very artful and it's, one, it's free on Amazon. So if you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. It's it's, it's disturbing. It's you know, it's horror for sure. There's no doubt about it. Oh yeah, it's it's not fun horror. And it's Roger Ebert made a good point. This got this movie got punished because it was so effective. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, Freddie and Jason are out there killing naked people right and left, and it's they're getting rated R. This is getting an X. That <laughs> doesn't make any sense, but did you know there's a sequel? Yes, <laughs> I have not seen it. it. It looks like a real piece of crap. And I'm not sure if anybody is involved in it or not. Michael Rooker is not in it. Uh, the director's not uh, part of it. Yeah, it's really silly. Yeah, I I had heard about the sequel, but I, I have no interest in it. 1996, so we're a few years away. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we won't have to actually watch them. <laughs> I don't know. But if you're really into possibly a horror movie you haven't seen, too, this is one that easily people have missed. Uh, I don't know. To me, it's one of the best, so I, I highly recommend it. Anything else? Not really. All right. Well, next week, we got a little bit more full show, so you won't have to listen to our political rants about being <laughs> canceled midway through the episode. <laughs> Uh, 1917, uh, Just Mercy, a similar topic as Henry, uh, Underwater, and Like a Boss. So, I don't know, we definitely got both, I, I'm thinking both sides of the equation when it comes to good and bad. <laughs> we'll find out. Our classic is Freebie and the Bean. It's the first buddy. Yeah, I, I, asked, I just asked Google what the first uh, buddy cop comedy was, and... They said it was 1974, Freebie and the Bean, starring James Caan and Alan Arkin. I'm looking for I mean, I like James Caan and Alan Arkin. Surprised I've never heard of it, (laughs) which makes me a little nervous. But we're going to find out. It is on Amazon if you want to watch it with us. 1990 Downtown, I think, is the reason. Yeah, Downtown is a buddy cop comedy with Anthony Edwards of Zodiac fame and uh, Forrest Whitaker. Uh, We also got Internal Affairs. Richard Gere and Andy Garcia. Uh, Leatherface, which is really when the Texas Chainsaw Massacre went downhill. <laughs> Vigo Mortensen in that oh, movie. I, this is the first one I saw as a kid. Oh, yeah. It was in 1990. Uh, and then uh, Ski Patrol, which <laughs> sounds like an instant classic. I can't wait to watch that one. Uh, USA and- Up All Night classic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I asked Sean, is this the first ski movie to, with boobs? And, but it was in 1990, so this had to have been like the seventh or eighth. <laughs> right. 
Uh, but that is our show. Before I go, I do want to thank our Patreon supporters, but we do have some changes, so I need to make sure I... I know the key grip level is just Jason Bryant now. Uh, Craft Services is still Zach Codemaker. The character actor level is still Josh and Beth Paul, Cousin Jeff, and Christina Cato. But the special effects level is just Corey Fennerin at the moment. So if you really want to help the podcast out, I hate critics.net slash Patreon is the best way to help support the podcast. And we're working on more interactive ways to make that inter- uh, worth your while. Uh, and there are there is ways to listen to, like you can use the feed from Patreon. It'll go right into your phone no matter what app you're using. You just got to put the URL in and you'll get access to to things people otherwise don't. We have been being nice and releasing everything, but eventually we'll do an episode and be like, just Patreon. Uh, but we haven't done that yet. Look forward to the Best of the Decade episode coming out soon. And realize that's the kind of stuff that will be on Patreon. Uh, and then our podcast merch tab, uh, we've got the artwork for almost all the designs uh, so far. Uh, the William Defoe's confusingly large penis artwork is <laughs> unbelievable, and it's and it's wearable. You know, yeah. it's not quite what as bad as it could be, which is good. It's something you could actually wear. If not, you could get a pillow or a mug or something. <laughs> the camera to his shoulders is fantastic. Not wearable at all, <laughs> but uh, in public. Right, you wear it at home. <laughs> but it's going to be... You can put that on your wall. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got the Batman V Jesus one coming as well. I I don't know. I'm really impressed. I literally just paid him, and I was expecting this to take a few months, you know. And I don't know. I'm really excited with what he's done so far. And can't wait to see the final product on Batman V Jesus. Uh, yeah, just search uh, search Jeff Lassiter on Facebook. You can find his uh, gallery, and you can buy his stuff and his uh, store and all that stuff. Yeah, and we'll start linking his stuff, too, as well, on our social media. Otherwise, that is our show. You got time for Flickchart? Yeah. Let me log in here. You got the quarter? Yeah, you do. Sign in. And we've got Live Free or Die Hard or Jumanji 1995. I'm not a big fan of either one. Um, Jumanji? Sure. I didn't hate Live Free or Die Hard either. I don't hate Jumanji for that matter. Polar Express, Casablanca. Casablanca. (laughs) Battle Royale, Curse of the Pink Panther. Battle Royale. Agreed. Mr. Roberts, 1955, or 2001, A Space Odyssey? I don't know about Mr. Roberts. Good, neither do I. Write it down as a possible (laughs) classic. (laughs) The Producers, 1968, or A Space Odyssey? Oh, it's the 2001, yeah. I love The Producers, though. Write that one down, too. I haven't seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Zombie's Halloween, or Billy Madison? (laughs) You've broken the episode. <laughs> it's Billy Madison. Really? I can't stand Rob Zombie's Halloween. 
Tarantino liked it. <laughs> I like both of them, so it's hard for me to decide. I'll go Halloween just so you have to flip the coin and drag this on a little longer. <laughs> you dick. Halloween and Billy Madison. Tails. <laughs> Billy Madison it is. I, I picked it for uncut gems. <laughs> Stepbrothers or Big Daddy? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Why do you hate me so much? Make these pop up. Stepbrothers. Go Big Daddy. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Big Daddy's not that bad. I hate Big Daddy heads. Better than Step Brothers. Well, Step Brothers is a piece of shit, too. I mean, which one do you want me to scrape off my shoe? The Jerk or Rain of Fire? <laughs> the Jerk. I agree. Teen Wolf or The Terminator? The Terminator. Yeah. I feel like that was going to be harder, but it wasn't. <laughs> Risky Business, Star Trek Generations. Risky Business. Thank you for making me a man, Rebecca McDeWarnay. <laughs> Star Wars, The Last Jedi, The Boondock Saints. Uh, the Last Jedi. Agreed. I think we're the only ones in the world that would agree, but... I hate Boondock Saints. I think it's garbage. Again, but we're the only ones. In the world. <laughs> this is fa- why we're not popular on the right. internet. <laughs> Final Fantasy: The Spirits Within, Consenting Adults. Which one's Consenting Adults? I don't know. But I like the name. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a 1990s thriller. Of 1992. Some sort. It looks. I mean, it looks like a sliver, or you know, uh, definitely picking that one. <laughs> It's better than Final Fantasy. <laughs> Lethal Weapon 2, Rat Race. Lethal Weapon 2. Agreed. Iron Man 2, Super Mario Brothers. Iron Man 2. Agreed. The Birds, Hook. The Birds. Although I, I'm one of the few people who like Hook. I don't mind Hook. Spy Hard, Lethal Weapon 4. Lethal Weapon 4. Spy Hard is really disappointing. Yeah. 2012, Basketball. <laughs> Basketball. <laughs> I'm with you. Is 2012 the one Josh liked? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Sorry, Josh. I'm not. I mean, basketball. <laughs> basketball is what an Adam Sandler movie should be. <laughs> right. It's, it's got a Jay and Silent Bob feel to it. Yeah. Kind of a throwaway movie, but fun enough. 12 Monkeys, Sin City. Wow. Uh, Sin City. 12 Monkeys is awesome. I agree, but it is. Well, it was awesome until recently. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't change anything. He's an old man. Let him be old. Okay, Boomer. Beowulf, you don't mess with the Zohan. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Gotta be Beowulf just because it's... Right? (laughs) You don't understand how much I... I really hated that experience of Beowulf. It was torture in this. Oh God, I hate it. just that, the the experience of it in the theater was so bad. Oh man, you go Adam Sandler for the second time. <laughs> I'm okay with it. Uh, uh, voting for uncut gems. <laughs> Is that how we have to end the episode? <laughs> Girl interrupted Greece. Girl Interrupted. Yeah, I like that movie. 2012 Hot Shots. (laughs) Hot Shots. Rango Chloe. 
Orango. I love Orango. Shrek, seven pounds. Shrek. Good. I was worried. I hate seven pounds. <laughs> Resident Evil Extinction, one hour photo. One hour photo. Arachnophobia of the Evil Dead. Evil Dead. That came out in 1990. Ooh, this is tough. Whiplash of Crocodile Dundee 2. <laughs> Whiplash. The Name of Rose, 1986. No idea what that is. Or Get Shorty. Get Shorty. The Score, Secrets and Lies. Secrets and Lies. It's De Niro and Brando. <laughs> Adaptation. You know the story behind the score, right? With, uh, uh, the, with Brando's behavior on that one. It's directed by Frank Oz. So he didn't respect Frank Oz at all. He was a bit like he doesn't respect any director. He was such a dick, though. And Brando was so specific about not being shot. I guess he just didn't want his the bottom half of him on screen for some reason. He would show up on set not wearing pants. Oh yeah, I heard specifically that. so Frank Oz had to shoot him in a different way. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to because Eddie Murphy has been on a press tour lately, and he Brando asked Eddie to come over to his house because he wanted to talk about. I think it was forty eight hours or something like that, and he delivered a line. Eddie Murphy. You know, he had said it back to Eddie Murphy, like, you were so fantastic. And when you said this line, he said it, it, one, it had the N-word in it. And two, he didn't say it like Eddie Murphy said it. (laughs) (laughs) But it was Brando. Yeah. And Eddie Murphy was just fascinated. Then when he made that movie Life or whatever with Martin Lawrence, he he really wanted Brando in it. And they were like, you think Brando would have done it? And he's like, there was a point in his career where Brando just wanted fuck you money. (laughs) And all I had to do was pay him, and he'd do it, but they didn't want to pay him. I remember Edward Norton telling a story about the score where, you know, he's an up-and-coming actor, and it's De Niro and Brando, and, you know, they're sitting there uh, in the same scene. Brando's not wearing pants, and De Niro falls asleep. <laughs> he's like, these are the two greatest actors of, of the, the last two generations, and <laughs> one's sleeping and one's not wearing pants. It's ah, a good ending spot too. Uh, adaptation or little Nikki? <laughs> We've ended this episode seven times. <laughs> of course, it's adaptation. Uh, have you heard this new podcast? By the way, there's a new podcast out there. Nathan Rabin has changed his podcast now with uh, Clint Worthington. It's now called uh, Travolta Cage, and they're comparing the movies of John Travolta and Nicolas Cage chronologically. I'm trying to wrap my head around that one. <laughs> it's fascinating. This week it's uh, Greece versus the Cotton Club. I mean, obviously the best movie between the two is Pulp Fiction. Hmm. Yeah. But then after that, I mean, Nicolas Cage made some weird movies. <laughs> the yeah. Raising Arizona is in there, obviously. Leaving Las Vegas. Man, he. Adaptation. Nicholas Cage wins. I mean, I <laughs> I haven't seen Saturday Night Fever, so you should write that one down too. Oh yeah, we should do that <laughs> one. Another classic. Saturday Night Fever is pretty amazing. Uh, Carrie, Carrie's good, but he's just an extra, really. Not he's more than extra, but not much more. I don't know. He could go on and on. <laughs> Broken Arrow? No, I'm kidding. That's Face a joke. off. <laughs> 
How do they decide that one is going to be fun? Like, how do you decide? Do you just decide who was better in the movie? <laughs> Part of me wants to watch that again, too. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, like, there's clearly, like, a fat stunt guy for one of them, like, right with a beard. <laughs> They'd even try to hide. Right. It's almost like Hot Shots or something like that. <laughs> Like right off the bat in that movie, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. So during the uh, airplane escape. Yeah. Yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> they do a really good job of playing each other. <laughs> other than the idea of looking normal if you pull your face off and put on someone else's. <laughs> I want to see a remake of that taken seriously. Oh, <laughs> uh, I want to. I want to do a. I want to. I want a YouTube video of uh, uh, Nicholas Cage saying, "I could need a peach for hours." Crossed with, "Can, can you call me by my name? <laughs> call me oh, by your Jesus name." Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> That's the next shirt for Jeff. <laughs> no one will get it. But why would anyone think of that? <laughs> Famous movie Peaches. Who doesn't think of that? <laughs> or just the medley of famous movie Peaches. <laughs> We're done. <laughs>